Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm really excited about today, uh, not just because of baptism, though that's a great way to start off the service. And if that's all we did, and we said, all right, we're done, God would be praised. Would he not? Amen. Amen. Uh, but because also, I'm, I'm excited this morning because we're going to get back into the book of Mark. Uh, some of you have, remember when we last did the book of Mark, oh, so long ago, back in August. Um, but some of you, maybe you've been recently coming and you're going, what are you talking about? Uh, well, we here at, at Houston Church, we like to, um, one, primarily I like to teach through a book of the Bible. That's my, my normal pattern. But uh, with that, there are times where we need to pause that so that we can address certain topics uh, that maybe aren't going to be coming up in the book that we're studying, or maybe because something has happened uh, in current events and in our town that uh, really you just can't ignore, and, and you need to bring the Bible to bear on that. Uh, or in, in the case of the fall, there were several things that we wanted to address as a church body uh, that God has been doing. So we spent our time doing that, but we're going to jump back into the book of Mark. And my hope is that we'll get to spend the next several months in it before we have to take another break. Uh, maybe around Easter is kind of when I'm thinking that would come, and then we'll try to kind of make some headway in it. But if you've not been here and you haven't had the first uh, part of Mark, no worries, because my goal is when I preach and teach from a book, I try to give you the necessary context uh, to understand the passage that we're, we're looking at that day. Uh, so if you haven't been here for the first part of, of Mark, uh, you, you haven't, uh, you, you're not like, too far gone, okay? So we're going we're gonna to catch you up. We're going to make sure that uh, you are, uh, have the context that you need. Uh, so if you're in Mark, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark, chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Um, if you need a Bible this morning, there should be a few Bibles on the chairs in front of you. If you use one of those Bibles, it will be page 1139. 1139. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be in verse 45 through 56 this morning. Uh, as you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible and you're using one of those from the chair in front of you, if as you're using it, you're going, man, I've never known a Bible to make this kind of sense. I, I, I've always had to get around words I don't understand. Uh, please take that Bible and keep it and use it. That would, be, uh, that would give us great joy if we knew that you were able to use that Bible uh, because you could understand it. And we will gladly get more if that's why they all go disappear. So Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 56. And before we jump in there and read that, um, you know, in the season of life that I'm in with young kids, and some of you are in there, but a lot of you have been there or will be there, um, it's kind of funny to me sometimes in a twisted parent kind of way, uh, when you watch your kids pick on one another, right? And, and usually it's the older to the younger, but there's kind of even a little bit more of that twisted parental joy when it's the younger picking on the older, you know? Um, but there, there's times in, in our household where a, a scene like this could play out. Let's say older to younger. And they start picking on one another, and, and the older says, uh, I'm going to get to have a snack later, but you're not. And, and so you, you're sitting there, you know, mom and dad are sitting there, and, and the older has just made that statement, I'm going to get to have a snack, but you're not. And, and maybe they give some kind of reasoning as to why the younger one's not going to get that snack, but the older one is. It makes absolutely no sense, but they provide it nonetheless, uh, which really scares when it does make sense. And you're going, hmm, maybe I do need to consider that. Uh, but then the, the younger one starts to get upset. And you can see all of a sudden uh, this, this downward spin. Right? Where, where all of a sudden what's just been said, the limitation that's been placed on the younger one by the older one, is now all-consuming the younger one. 
right? And, and, and so the young one starts to cry and to, to throw a fit or, or to start, you know, uh, arguing back and forth with the older one and explain why she should get a snack or he should get a snack for some of you guys. And, and, and it's just kind of funny to listen to all the while not one of them thinking to include a parent, right? <laughs> So at some point, maybe one of them, uh, the younger one, maybe the younger one at one point thinks to, to bring mom and dad in the picture, but usually in my house, not the case. And so what happens is mom or dad, we have to insert ourselves into their little world, right? And, and into their little problem, although it's all consuming for them at the moment. It's all they can see. And when we insert ourselves into that situation, we might say something like this. Uh, we might say, um, who's the authority here? Now, that's a big word for, for younger kids, so sometimes we just say, who's the boss? You know? And, and, and who's the authority? Now, we've asked that question enough in our house. They know the question. So they'll say, uh, mom or dad. Right. Okay. Um, so does your sister have the authority to make a decision on whether you have a snack? No. Okay. So why are you getting all upset about that? Who, who has that authority to make the decision whether you have a snack or not? You? Right. So, so why don't you just ask mom or dad whether you can have a snack or not? Right? And so, so we take their, their perspective which has, and their world which has been consumed by a limitation, something that's been placed on them, and they can't see past it. They don't know how they're going to get past this one little moment. But we as parents, we're on the outside going, it's no big deal. Hey, because I'm here. I can step into this and squash it in a moment. And neither one of you will have a snack. Or maybe both of you will have a snack. Or maybe the younger will get the snack just despite the older one, you know? Whatever the case may be. But we can insert ourselves in and reframe their perspective and take their, their vision, which has been consumed by what's down here, and pull them back so they can see the bigger picture and trust the one who's in authority. That's what we have going on this morning in the book of Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. So if you'll look with me there, we'll read through it, and then we'll talk through it. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dispersed the crowd. After saying goodbye to them, he went to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. As the night was ending, he came to them walking on the sea, for he wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, for they all saw and were afraid. But immediately he spoke to them, Have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up with them into the boat, and the wind ceased. They were completely astonished, because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. After they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and anchored there. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized Jesus. They ran through that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever he was rumored to be. And wherever he would go, in villages, towns, or countryside, they would place the sick in the marketplaces and would ask him if they could just touch the edge of his clothing. And all who touched it were healed. So... What's happened right before Jesus is sending his disciples uh, across the lake is Jesus has just fed the 5,000 people, right? That's the name of the story. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The reality is he actually fed a whole lot more because that was just 5,000 men. 
When the Bible counts a lot of times, it just counts the men. It doesn't count the, the, the wife that's with them and the kids that's with them. So 5,000 men Jesus has fed. And he did that off of five loaves and two fish. And, and his point in doing all that, yes, these people had been following them. They, they, were, they were in this desolate place and it was going to be too far for them to walk to get, to get a meal for the night or, or for that, that time of day. And so Jesus looks at his disciples, the 12, and you know, the closest ones to him, and he says, uh, hey, you feed them. To which they say, what do you mean, Jesus? We can't feed all these people. Are we supposed to take all of the money, more than a day's wage, and we're supposed to go and feed them? And Jesus uses that moment to teach them that apart from him working through them, they can't do anything. They can't take the ministry that God wants to do through them and meet the needs of the people and minister to that, that, that region or whoever they are in front of unless Christ does it through them. And so he uses that to teach them that if they trust in him, he will meet and minister through them, and they will be able to do more than they could ever imagine when it comes to meeting people's needs and ministering to them and bringing God's message. That was Jesus' point for his disciples. And so that's just concluded. It's late. Uh, the, John, the book of John, uh, tells us another side of the story, gets us a little bit more details, uh, where it says, and the people who had just been fed, they actually recognized who Jesus was, and they wanted to make him king right then and there. And so it's likely what's going on is Jesus is now separating his disciples from the crowd who's ready to make him king because he's going to address the crowd and send them off. But he doesn't want his disciples getting caught up in that. But I think he also wants more. And so what he does in, in verses 45 where he picks up is he sends his disciples across to the other side of the lake. Go get in the boat and go to the other side while he stays alone, and he's going to dismiss the crowd. And then he's going to go and pray, it says. So look at verse 45. Um, he goes, they sent him in a boat to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dispersed the crowd. Verse 46. After he said goodbye to them, he went to the mountain to pray. Now before I just rush past that, I want, I want to say something about this. It's late in the day. Jesus has just fed over 5,000 people. He has had a tremendous victory when it comes to ministry. It has been a highly successful event, if you will. And I don't mean for that to sound uh, demeaning in any way. But Jesus has just had a moment where he has poured out himself. It was a miraculous thing where, where five loaves and two fish fed over 5,000 people and there was leftovers. And every single person walked away filled and satisfied. He's poured out himself. When the Bible tells us that Jesus went to pray, it's usually after major events like this. It's usually after major victories or right before something major or significant. You know, when it comes to uh, ministry and pouring out into people, and when I say ministry, please don't hear me talking about just the paid staff or leaders of the church. Because if you're a believer in Christ, you're all called to ministry. And there are times where in the ministry that God has placed you, whether that's around your work folk or your family or, or, your, or your classmates, where you pour yourself out into someone where you are meeting their needs, whether that be through counsel or giving advice or pointing them to the scripture in some place to, to give them direction, where you pour yourself out. And sometimes there's a win. There's a win and there's a victory in that the person either uh, is ministered to, they're encouraged, or, or they, they take the advice and it turns out to be a really good thing. Maybe if you are in that moment and you're sharing the gospel, God allows you to see that they believe. And so now you've got a brand new family member. Well, a lot of times there's that, that victory that takes place. 
And when we walk away from that victory after having poured ourselves down, sometimes that's the most draining time of our lives. Sometimes in ministry, after we've just poured ourselves out and there's been a victory, sometimes that's when we are most vulnerable because we are tired, we are exhausted, excited, yes, maybe even exhilarated from what just happened, but we are walking high. We are, we are, we are living uh, like we are on top of the world because we're so excited and sometimes we just flat out don't know what to do with that excitement and we become vulnerable, we become tired. And so maybe it's sometimes in that moment where we open ourselves up to some type, particular type of sin. And we open ourselves up and, and we even give ourselves an excuse or permission. And we say, you know what? I can, I can dabble a little bit here because I've just built up enough credit spiritually that it's really not even going to make a dent. And so a lot of times you'll see people in those moments give in to something that's really not God on them. Oh, or sometimes oh, we'll take those moments that, that really are all about God and all about His glory and all about what He just did through us. And we are walking so high and we're so excited that we, in our twisted sort of way, start to convince ourselves that that was actually us. That that was actually our charisma. That was our wisdom. That was us stepping in at the exact right time because we have just such impeccable timing and such tremendous insight to be able to see that that person needed us at that time. And man, if we weren't there, they wouldn't have gone through this. Sometimes we get to that point and we start taking pride in something and convincing ourselves that that was us when really it was all God and God doesn't even need us. Sometimes he chooses to use us, but he doesn't need us. Or maybe what we do is we start to just think very highly of ourselves. We start to, to think, well, you know what? That was a pretty amazing moment. I've never seen him do that. Man, I'm really starting to climb past him. In fact, I thought he was the goal or she was the goal, but now I'm the goal. They should be looking at me now. And striving to be what I am. And striving to be where I am. Sometimes we twist it like that. And what we're doing is we're taking God's glory in that moment and putting it on ourselves. And it has no place there. It's a vulnerable moment. We don't know why Jesus wants to pray. We don't know what he prayed about. I do, do know that from the, the Gospels, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, what we do see is something that's consistent, that Jesus, on this life, when he walked in the, on the earth, even though he was God, he willingly chose to submit himself to God the Father as God the Son, and he willingly chose to live a life that was dependent upon and empowered by God the Spirit. All the while, he could have done everything in his own power, but Jesus, while on earth, chose to operate in that relationship with the other members of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all worked together, and Jesus chose to live that kind of life. And so he goes to pray in this pinnacle moment. The last thing I want to say about this is, uh, this is in the afternoon, late evening. In fact, we're going to see in just a minute, when he goes to meet the disciples, it's actually, your Bible might say the fourth watch, it's a Roman term, it's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which means he was actually spending that time praying before then. Which means it was not morning. Now, some of you, that's morning, right? 3 a.m. I mean, technically, it's morning. But some of you, that's still nighttime because you haven't gone to bed yet, you know? But he was actually spending that time 
the later evening and the night. Pray. And here's what I want to say. Get your time in whenever you can. Don't condemn yourself if you can't get it in the morning. Get it when you can. Some of you know what it's like to be woken up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and not go to sleep, and you spend that time praying. Take it. Use it. And I, my experience has been when God wakes you up, or when you wake up and you choose to instead spend that time praying, or God wants to use that time to, to converse with you or show you some things or to prepare you for some things, He will sustain you the rest of that day. So you only got an hour of sleep. It's all right. God will sustain you the rest of that day. He will. Get your time in. Make sure you have that time where you can converse with God through prayer, but you can listen to God as well. Get in where you can. If it's 2 o'clock in the morning when everybody else is sleeping and you just got woken up, take it. Because you know what? The kids will be up soon. And you know you're not getting in the morning when the kids are up. Right? Or your day's going to get going and that first email is going to determine the rest of your day and you're going to be running. <laughs> Jesus, in this case, was praying at night. So he, uh, he finishes praying, and, and now it's you know, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., you know, it's, it's the twilight hour, right? And he uh, looks across the lake, and he sees his disciples. They haven't made it to the other side yet. And what's very neat about this, and, and we kind of lose this in the English translation, and I, and I don't always try to bring the Greek in here because I'm not trying to stand up here and say, if you knew Greek like I knew Greek, then you would get this. But sometimes it is so worth bringing in because it just doesn't make sense in English. We can't translate it. But Mark is doing something very specific here. Look with me at verse 48. He saw them straining at the oars. They see, that makes sense. We can picture that in English. But in the Greek, it says, and the wind was harassing them. That wouldn't make sense if we put it in, 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 in the English language. And so what our translations do is they put it so we can understand. But Mark is doing something very intentional here. He's starting to picture the disciples in, in, a, in a time of pressure, in a time of stress, in a time of persecution, in a time where they are being tormented. And, and in fact, it goes on in verse uh, 48. He saw them straining at the oars, or, or if, if you think about the Greek, the wind was harassing them because the wind was against them. Mark is doing something very intentional where he's trying to take the, the natural elements of the weather and the wind and the waves and he's depicting them as being against the disciples. He's picturing them any time of trial, any time of pressure, any time of stress. Something you may remember about the Gospel of Mark is who it's being written by, uh, to. It's actually being written to the Roman church. The church in Rome of this time, Christians in Rome, so that they would have a gospel, an account of Jesus' life, so that they would have that to study and to know and to hear but also because the Roman church at the time Mark is being written is either likely already going through persecution or they're headed that direction. And so Mark takes his time, his buddy Peter right there, reaccounting all of this, and Mark writes it down so he can send it to the church. And he's also showing them, here's how you become a disciple. Here's how you uh, act like a disciple in these times of pressure, in these times of persecution. And so as Mark sets this up, the disciples are on the, the sea and they're being tormented and they're being harassed and the wind and the waves are against them. He's starting to picture that kind of time. And uh, so we go on and, and I, I love how the Bible is just so nonchalant, uh, you know, about things. And it says, he saw them in verse 48 straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And as the night was ending, he came to them walking on the sea for he wanted to pass by them. 
Yeah, just matter of fact. I mean, it, it, because that's just what you do. When, when you stayed on this side of the lake all by yourself and you sent your, your close friends over to the other side of the lake in your boat and now you're ready to go meet them but they're still in the lake, what you do is you just start walking on the water so that you can go meet them. That's just what you do, right? At the witching hour. It's just so nonchalant. And he went and he walked on the water to them. Jesus saw them in the middle of the lake and he goes and he walks on top of the water. Not beside the water, not on some ice that had frozen over because it was a once-in-a-lifetime <laughs> superstorm that happened to freeze part of the lake. Not, be, not walk on sand dunes because it was actually so shallow that he was just appearing to walk on water. No, no. Jesus was doing that which only God can do. And he was walking on the water. In the book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8, it talks about God walking on the water. And it says, he alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus, in this moment, is doing that which only God can do. He's treading on the ways of the sea as he goes to meet them. So look with me at verse 49. So when they saw him walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out. See, Jesus is walking on the water to them, and, and, and he, he gets near them, and they all see him. And they're fearful. It's a ghost. Now, something that's helpful to understand in, in, in the biblical times... Uh, there was an understanding, a belief even, that in the sea, in large bodies of water, dwelled ghosts, demons, the dead. Even that below the, the sea, below the water, was actually the gate in the Hades, the place of the dead. And there was this understanding. And so you can imagine that in the witching hour, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., you're on the boat, you're in the middle of a storm, maybe you have this thinking in your head that, hey, this is the place of the dead, this is where things happen, and then all of a sudden you see this guy who shouldn't be there in the middle of the lake walking up next to you? I can kind of understand why they thought it was a ghost. See, I, I'm not, I'm not so, so quick to be hard on them because I'm going, well, I, I think I would have thought the same thing too. I think I would have been frightened, and I would have thought, this is it. We've done. We tried. We're just going to die right here, you know? But Mark, more than any other gospel writer, reveals to us the struggle that the disciples had in understanding who Jesus was. Mark, more than any other gospel writer, reveals to us the, the not-so-glamorous side of the twelve that we so uh, honor and uphold. Because what he shows us is their struggle to get and understand fully who Jesus is, and then to trust that. And so he, he, he walks up to them, and they're fearful. He's a ghost. We don't know who he is. We go on, and in verse 50, for they all saw him and were terrified. In fact, terrified, uh, the idea that, that Mark is using here, the word is inward turmoil. Again, very pictorial because outwardly you've got a lot of turmoil going on the sea. You've got waves that are just churning up and the wind that is just whipping around. And inwardly when they see Jesus, God, walking on the water, instead of being drawn to him in worship, instead they are fearful. They are inwardly afraid and their insides are churning now like the sea. But did you, uh, did you notice that uh, Jesus in verse 48, it said he just wanted to pass by them. Just want to pass by it. Now, now you and I, we read that and we say, why? Well, that's, that's kind, of, kind of silly, Jesus. God doesn't get to have an introvert moment. You can't just walk by these people who are in trouble because you've just had some great alone time and you don't want to mess that up because you got this vibe going. Have you ever done that? I have. 
Man, I just, I just got some time spending in the Word, and I'm praying, and I'm feeling super spiritual right now. But you know what? If you bring your mess into my life, that's going to mess up what I've got going here. So I kind of avoid people. You ever done that? Yeah, you're going to keep your head still. I understand. I understand. I've done that. Okay? I've been there. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not trying to catch an introvert moment. Instead, that phrase, pass by, is actually rooted in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses, you know, the great Moses, the prophet, uh, Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Reveal yourself to me. And in that chapter, God says to, to, to Moses, go in and he hides them in this, in between these rocks. And he says, you've got to hide in these rocks because you can't see the front of me as I pass by. And when it describes God revealing his glory to Moses, it describes it as God passing by. In 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah, one of the great prophets, uh, he had just come off of this great victory where, you know, he had confronted these 450 false prophets of other gods and, and, and he had shown that his God is actually the true God and he had humiliated them and then slaughtered them all and then ran for his life and he finds himself in this cave. And God says to him while he's in this cave, go stand outside and look for God to pass by. And that's the story where Elijah steps out and there's this great windstorm. But God's not in the windstorm. And there's this earthquake. But God's not in the earthquake. And there's this fire. But God's not in the fire. It's the whisper. And the silence in which God passes by and reveals his glory to Elijah. Because God is a God of contrasts. All-powerful that speaks in the silence reveals himself in the very stillness. What Jesus was wanting to do was to pass by them so that he can reveal his glory to them, so that they would have another opportunity to understand who this person was that they had been spending the time with, watching do miracles, listening to teach, and Jesus was giving them that moment for them to understand and to go deeper. But they missed it. They missed Instead, they were afraid. So I love what Jesus does here. Having had this moment where doing what only God can do, walking on the water, and, and having that moment where he wanted to pass by them and reveal his glory, and instead they're afraid, he says to them something that was also common in the Old Testament as they read through it. He says to them in verse 50, For they saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them, have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Same phrase that you will find in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses finds himself before this bush that is burning but not being consumed. And God from that bush speaks to him. And, and, and Moses asks him, Well, who are you? What's your name? And God says, I am. Yahweh is the, the Hebrew. It's, the name Yahweh is really just a verb, like to be, I am. When Jesus walks on the water and he reveals himself, he says, it is I. He's basically saying to them, I am. I am. And they don't get it. So he climbs in the boat, verse 51, and the wind ceased. Another miracle. 
right? And, and they, he climbs in in the midst of all this turmoil, and as soon as he steps into the boat, peace, be still. It's silent. And they were completely astonished. Verse 52, because, listen to this, this is what Mark reveals to us. This is where Mark kind of gives us that peek into the heart of the disciples. Because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Remember I told you what had just happened before they find themselves in this situation? Mark connects it back to that, and he said, they didn't get it. They did not get the loaves. They did not get that Jesus in that moment was revealing himself to them and to others and was trying to take them deeper in their trust for him, but they didn't get it. They lacked the faith. They did not believe. And Mark says, and their hearts were hardened. The disciples' unbelief, the disciples' lack of faith led to them having a state of being in a hard heart. Their hearts were unable to see who Jesus was right before them, and they were unable to trust him because they were living in a state of sustained unbelief. They weren't trusting who Jesus was, even though it was right before him revealing himself, doing all of this stuff. They didn't believe. And as they continued in that unbelief, their heart became hard. And they were unable to see what God was doing in front of them. What's really neat is if you go through the rest of the verses, 53 through 56, which is really kind of just a summary statement by Mark, kind of summing up the previous section, there's a little, little snippet in there that just kind of takes that knife that's already been jabbed into the gut and just kind of twists it just a little bit and says, ah, yeah, that's the one spot. Look at that. Look at verse 53. If they crossed over, they came to the land of Genesaret and anchored there. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized Jesus. People, the crowd, those who were not walking close to Jesus, those who were not his disciples, they immediately recognized him. And they acted in faith. Because then they started bringing all their sick and the people who couldn't walk, and they were bringing them to Jesus because they knew who he was. And they were even saying, you know what, if we can just touch his cloak, we'll be healed. But the disciples were hardened. They were so close to Jesus, and yet because of their hardness of heart, they were, were unable to go deeper in their trust. They were unable to grow and see who he was in that moment. <clears throat> Sometimes our circumstances seem very big. Sometimes they seem too big. And it's when our circumstances are too big that our view of God is too small. When your circumstances, whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with, whatever is confronting you, when it is too big, you can't see past it. It's all consuming. Remember like my girls and not being able to have a snack. In that moment, that's all they can see. They can't see how they're going to get past that. They can't see who can solve that, who can step in. It's all-consuming. Their circumstances are too big. When your circumstances seem too big, it's because your view of God is too small. The disciples were founding themselves in circumstances too big. How are they going to get out of that, that storm? How are they going to get to the other side? They've been there. They've been struggling. But their circumstances were too big to them because their view of God was too small. They didn't get it. Some of you this morning need to uh, ask the Spirit of God to search your heart and reveal to you if you've got some hardness. 
Because maybe there's been some times recently where you've not been trusting God for something. To work in your life, to, to guide you, to provide direction, uh, to, to reveal things to you, to work out a situation. Well, whatever it is, you've found yourself in a circumstance and now it's consuming you. You don't know how you're going to get out of it. You don't know how you're going to get past it. You don't know if there's any way beyond where you are. Your circumstances are too big. But maybe you've not been trusting God. And so your heart has gotten hardened. And so you can't see past your limitation. You, you can't see how God could possibly insert himself in here. Because he, he is the very God of creation. And yet he walked among his creation. And he controlled and he subdued his creation. But, but you can't see how he can insert himself into your small world. And I don't mean that in demeaning because I know when we're in it, it is all consuming. But if we pull back, it's like me looking at my daughter saying, it's a snack. I can fix this. I can insert myself in here and it will be done. Some of you maybe have gotten some calluses built up on your heart. You need to deal with that. I've gone through seasons like that where I didn't realize I was in that season until I was out of it. Until I was broken. Until I found myself looking back, realizing all the while I thought I was close to God. I thought there was nothing between us. I thought I was walking in perfect unity with God. But then when I'm broken, I realize how blind I have been. As a believer, as a believer, because I had convinced myself I'm, I'm, I'm living as God wants me to live. I'm doing what God wants me to do. I know how to speak. I know how to talk. I, I mean, I'm, I'm waking up. I'm reading the Bible. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. All the while, I had blinded myself. I had allowed myself to become hardened because of unbelief somewhere down the road, lack of faith, and then I took that away. And then that moment of being broken, God showed me, see, like that, that's where it started. That's the moment you didn't trust me. And that's the moment when the heart began to harden. And it was a process. Some of you are there, and you need to be woken up. You need to be shaken a little bit. But some of you, maybe you're, you're hardened and you don't know it, but you can identify with the disciples. And you're in a situation that's too big. Your circumstances are too big. And you don't know how you're going to get out of it. You don't know how you're going to pass it. You don't even know if there's anything beyond it. And you're looking for, how do I get out of this? How do I get beyond this? Is there anything outside of this? And the answer is, yes, there is. Because that is why Christ came. That is why God came. Because he knew we can't do this on our own. We can't make it through life and, and, and do things that would earn us a place with God. We can't get through life and completely shut God out and say, no, I've got this. Because he actually designed us to be dependent upon him. And so when we say, I don't need you, I'm independent, I've got this. We're going to find ourselves in a lot of pickles trying to figure out how to get out of it. Maybe you're there, but God sent Christ to insert himself into that, into a world that's broken, into a world where we do get consumed with things that are really small in comparison to God. And he let Christ walk and live and, and meet every requirement that God had of us. And then when Christ died, having met every requirement that God had, that requirement had been satisfied. And but God, Christ didn't stay down. He didn't stay in the grave. Instead, he rose from the grave, which means he defeated death. 
and, and the power that raised Christ from the dead now is available to us. And so the very thing, I mean, think about something that's all-consuming, right? Death. Right? Nobody comes back from that in, every, in, in our everyday world, right? Oh, well, there was that news article recently, uh, 45 minutes dead, mom prayed, kid came back. There's moments like that, right? But when we think about death, it is final. It's all-consuming. It's too big. Not for Christ. He defeated that. He came back. And now God says, if you just place your trust in what Christ did, he will give you the life that Christ has. Amen. That circumstance, that, that place you find yourself that's too big, all of a sudden you're going to realize nothing is too big for God. He makes that available to us, but he requires us to believe. It's not free to just put on your plate with you doing nothing. You don't have to earn it. Faith and belief is not something you can do and then later say, I believe more than he did. I had more faith. No, the reality is every single person, God has made this requirement clear. Every single person comes to the cross of Christ and has to admit, I don't have what it takes. I can't measure up. So there's no room for boasting. There's no room for me to say to someone, well, your life was a lot worse than mine was. doesn't matter. I needed grace. You needed grace. The bottom line is there's no room to boast when someone just gives you something for you. You cannot boast and say, oh, he found something in me. Mm -mm. God requires that we believe. Belief would be simply like you sitting in that chair today. There's one thing to believe that's a chair. It's one thing to believe that a chair is made for people to sit on. Uh, James in chapter 1 would say, hey, you believe that Jesus is God? Great. Even the demons do that. You believe that God is one? Great. Even the demons believe that. It's not enough to have the right belief. We like to separate belief from action, but in the, in the Hebrew mindset, there was no such distinction. Your belief led to the way you acted. The moment you sat in that chair, the moment you put all of your weight in that chair and trusted it as a chair is the moment you believed that that chair was a chair. The moment we put all of our weight on Christ and what he has done, his death and his resurrection on our behalf, the moment we take that and apply it to our lives personally is the moment we believe. And that's available for you if you find yourself in that spot. So let me pray for us. If you find yourself in that spot, uh, then I'm going to say a prayer while I pray today. And if that's you, you know what? I I've said this before. The prayer itself doesn't save. It's expressing the faith. And sometimes we can express that through prayer. Sometimes uh, you express that just in the quietness of your heart when you believe. So I don't want you to be confused. Just because someone said a prayer doesn't mean they're saved. doesn't mean they trust it. But it's a great way to be able to express something that maybe we have a hard time expressing. So I'm going to say a prayer, and there's going to be a moment where I'll ask you, if you want to do that, just pray that back after me. So, Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for your, your word from Mark, for the, the, the vulnerability we see in the disciples and the struggle that they had because it's our struggle. Sometimes it's hard. In fact, oftentimes it's hard to trust you. Sometimes it's hard to fully understand who you are and how you can... Uh, how you can and, and need to be inserted into our lives, our everyday life. And so we kind of just tuck you away for Sundays. But God, we can't do that. And you don't want us to do that. So God, I know there's times where our hearts become hardened. And I pray that in those moments, your spirit would just break away the callousness that is built up in us. When we start being consumed by things that shouldn't consume us. 
when we start believing that the thing in front of us is so big that we can't get beyond it, God, would you break it? Or would you break us? And your great love and mercy, because to live in a state of being hardened in our heart is not where we find life. It's not where we find hope. So God, there's some here this morning who needs your spirit to search them so that you would reveal to them the callousness, the hardness, and they lie in their heart, but they convince themselves not there. And God, there's others here this morning who they identify with the disciples. It's too big. There's too much going on. There's too much in front of me. I can't see past this. And yet, God, you want to speak into that this morning. And you want them, you want them to understand that you already acted, that you are bigger than that. So, God, I pray for them this morning that you will show them their need for you. That sin separates them from you. And there's a need for them to be reconciled to you. And you made that way. You provided the means for that reconciliation through Christ. His death on our behalf and his resurrection and new life. And that life can be theirs if they just believe that. And stop trusting in whatever it is they're trusting in. So, I'm back to you this morning. I just ask you, either quietly or uh, out loud, you pray this. Father, uh, I understand that I don't meet your standard, that, that I don't measure up. I'm what the Bible calls a sinner. And that separates me from you. But God, I know that, and I now understand that you sent Christ to die for me and raise the life. And I trust him and his work on the cross on my behalf to forgive my sins and to give new life. If you've uh, prayed that or expressed that in your heart, uh, the Bible would say in the book of John that you've just passed from death to life. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Christ. We'd love to talk to you about it. Find someone that brought you. Find out, uh, someone else in the church that you know and trust. We'd love to visit with you about that. Talk about what, what's next. Father, as we finish up and wind down our time of worship this morning, use these last few moments to take your word and solidify it in our hearts and show us how it applies in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. If you're able, will you please stand? And we'll dismiss. Oh, and that missions meeting is actually today. I know it said next Sunday. We're not trying to throw you off. Today is February 8th. So if you're interested in going on a missions trip, that's today. There is no situation there is no circumstance that is bigger than your God. So trust Him. Walk with Him. Lean on Him. And you will find Him faithful. And go out and live and proclaim Him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. See so you next week.